Welcome to Built to Go, a van live podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity and my little river property here that I quite enjoy. This time we're going to talk about that fraught topic of recycling. Yeah, some of you are going to hate me after this one, and maybe some of you won't. <laughs> we'll see. We're also going to do a product review of another product I absolutely love, the Venti Fan. A tale from the road involving, well, something creepy again. And we're going to visit a local historic site that's actually pretty interesting. Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm very happy to have you here. As you can see, I'm trying to record this outdoors down in what we affectionately call Tiki Bago land. And um, it's loud. <laughs> Not only do we have all the birds, we also have passing barges and other industrial noises, but uh, you know, hey, a little bit of ambience is kind of fun sometimes, so that's what we're going to do this week. Now, let's get to the topic at hand. Last week, I talked about my mysterious Bluetooth speaker that was going honk honk, and somebody commented to me privately that they were a little disappointed to see me throw a Bluetooth speaker in the trash because that is e-waste, and e-waste is bad. And I agree, and the part I left out is, the way I handle trash in my van is when I go back to the condo, which is normally what I do when I use my van on the weekend down here in Tiki Bagoland, I sort the trash at home. <laughs> so that device has been recycled. It was taken to Micro Center, which accepts e-waste, which is what I do with all my e-waste. Basically, I have a bag at home, and I put in the bag any kind of old stuff that I don't want that's kind of electronic. So. Howard, yes, it was recycled. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. But it brings into question the entire concept of recycling. How do you do it effectively in a van? And more importantly, should you? So if you're my age, mid-50s or younger, you were taught that recycling was part of being a good person. Good people recycle. Bad people don't recycle. And now we're not even talking about littering here. Littering is bad. I don't care who you are or what your philosophy is. Throwing something out the window of your car or just tossing it in the woods is bad. And saving the environment, that's a good thing. It's good for everybody. If you disagree with that, well, that's a little strange since you're talking about the air you breathe and the land you live on. So we can agree on those things, I think. But with recycling, things get fairly tricky. So what we've been told is that you buy your bottle of soda and you drink your bottle of soda and then you take the bottle and you carefully put it in the recycling and then magically that bottle becomes another bottle or a park bench or something else useful. That's how we're told recycling works. But if you do any research into it, especially with plastics, you learn that that isn't the case at all. Now, I used to live in Vermont, which has some of the strictest recycling laws in the country, and did back when I lived there 20 years ago. And when I went to the recycling center with all my separated recyclings, I asked, what do you make with all this recycling stuff? The person at the center could only reply with, well, we make recycling bins. And that was the only thing they had. They had never actually found a use for the recycled plastic. And it's true that plastic recycling just kind of doesn't work. I have an article that I'll link in the show notes about a report that NPR did on how exactly plastic recycling is working. And the short answer is 
it isn't. A tiny amount of plastic is actually recycled, and the plastic that is recycled is kind of crap. The problem is that virgin plastic, which is made out of oil and natural gas and things like that, is a much better product and is actually cheaper to produce. So recycled plastic, while it sounds great, and you've seen these ads for turn this soda bottle into another soda bottle and we'll keep the cycle going, it doesn't actually work because every iteration of recycling the plastic makes a crappier product. And so what's happening is that people are recycling, like here in Illinois, or at least in Chicago, we have single stream recycling. We separate our trash from our cardboard, our glass, our plastic, our cans. That goes into one thing. That's collected by a separate trucking company. And then it goes to a facility where it is sorted somehow and then sold. And for years and years, a lot of this plastic waste was heading over to Asia where it would literally just sit. And now a lot of the Asian countries are saying, you know, we're done with this. We don't want it anymore. So it's becoming a big problem. I'm saying all this just to paint the reality of recycling and that it isn't as important as you might think. And that has an impact on van life. Now, if you're living in a van, you know that space is at a premium, a very, very big premium. And if there's one downside to recycling, it takes up space. So my overall argument is going to be, now don't worry about recycling in the van. That's gonna be my overall point. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> but here's my defense of it. If you do store your recycling in your van, you're gonna need a lot of space. You're gonna need your regular garbage space and you're gonna need your recycling space. And believe it or not, the advice on recycling is not to crush those cans and bottles, but to leave them uncrushed because the sorting machines they use work on air and the air needs to blow onto the can or bottle or whatever to push it off of the conveyor belt. And a crushed can, it can't do that with, so it's much less effective at sorting. Also, if you live in one of those deposit states or you're just visiting one, they only accept uncrushed cans and bottles. So that 12 pack of soda that you bought is gonna take up that same amount of space even when it's empty. You can see the problem, especially if you're boondocking, you're spending a couple of weeks on BLM land, this waste is gonna pile up. So, another thing to think about is these things attract critters. If you happen to like Coca-Cola, sugary Coca-Cola, mice love Coca-Cola. Uh, as somebody who recycled assiduously in Vermont, and which has a deposit law, I would often find dead mice in my Coca-Cola bottles that I would leave stored to take to the recycling center. Now you can put the cap on, that will help with that, but ants, eh, they're not gonna care so much about the cap. So there's that to worry about too. And the absolute worst thing you can do is to say, oh, well, I've got an awful lot of recycling here. Better go find a place to return it and then drive around for half an hour because then you're burning fuel. And of course, burning the fuel is a lot worse for the environment than the actual recycling. So yeah, it sounds terrible, right? We should just treat all of our recycling just as trash and well, no. That's not exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you choose to do that, it's not the end of the world, but I do like my approach of that I have one thing of trash and then I sort it as I throw it away. For example, if I go to a rest area, not all rest areas, but some rest areas have sorting things or here's your plastics, here's your cans, here's your trash. I will just pick through my small bag of trash because that's the secret to trash, small bags, and just put them in and then I'll throw the rest away. 
easy peasy. It's not a big deal. And if I miss a can or a bottle, I'm not going to lose sleep on it because a single person's impact is very, very, very small. And there's another truth to this that people really don't like, but it happens to be true, is that landfills aren't the worst thing in the world. Now we're speaking about the US here. We have lots and lots of space here. And putting things in landfills sounds very wasteful. You're basically filling up a valley with garbage and then covering it up. And then you can have some water problems and methane problems. Yes, I understand all that. But the alternatives are actually worse. Recycling paper causes all kinds of dioxin waste and is terrible for the environment. Recycling plastic doesn't work. And then we get to the things that actually do work. Recycling aluminum absolutely is a good thing because aluminum comes from bauxite, which are basically rocks, and they use a lot of electricity to heat that up to get the aluminum out. If you start with just aluminum, recycling that makes complete sense. So aluminum, yeah, okay, that one absolutely makes sense. Bottles, mm, yeah, you can recycle bottles and save a bit of energy, but bottles are made out of sand. Again, it's a fairly cheap thing, and bottles are inert. If they're in a landfill, sure, they're gonna take up space, but they're not going to interact with anything and produce anything bad. So don't worry about those either. Now, what I do varies depending on where I am. If I'm here, where we have no trash pickup, I will put everything in a bag and take it back to Chicago, where we do have trash pickup, except for burnable items like papers and cardboards and things like that. Those I will burn here because we often have a campfire here. There's no problem with that. If you're going to have a campfire anyway, go ahead and burn your cardboard and stuff. It takes up a lot of space and its recycling potential is really quite low. But there's a whole thing we haven't talked about yet that's actually super important, and I think a lot of the minimalist van life people get this intuitively, and that is the reduce and reuse part of this equation. Don't buy soda in bottles. <laughs> Try to avoid that. Do stuff differently. One little trick I do whenever I go grocery shopping and I'm out in my van is I will strip the food at the supermarket where they often have trash and recycling services. For example, let's say I buy some frozen food, which is something I do fairly often. I will take the frozen food out of the cardboard package, and with a Sharpie, I'll write on the food how long it takes to cook in the microwave, if I happen to be doing that, and then I will throw the cardboard in the recycling at the supermarket. Or if I have something that's packaged in plastic, I'll take the plastic off and throw it away at the supermarket. No, this doesn't solve the overall problem that recycling doesn't work, but it solves my problem of having this stuff in the van and me not knowing what to do with it. Now, there's a little tricky thing if you live in a deposit state, because then you've got cans that have to be kept the same size and bottles, and we just talked about that. What's the solution for that? If you're out boondocking, how do you deal with that? Well, you can donate those items. A lot of churches and small towns will have bottle donation centers. That's just an option you have. Instead of getting your five cents per can back, go ahead and make a donation to the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or the homeless shelter or whomever is collecting this stuff. And you can get it out of your van and save yourself some space, which is super, super important. So my bottom line of all this, as I said, is don't sweat recycling that much. You're not making that much of an impact by making Herculean efforts to try to get everything where it's supposed to go. 
because when it gets there, it's probably just gonna end up in a landfill anyway. And burning fuel to get it there is worse than actually not getting it there. And landfills really aren't that bad. Comments are below. I'm happy to talk to you about any of this, but before you comment, please listen to the NPR article so you at least know where I'm coming from. Tech Talk. So this Tech Talk is actually different from what's in the video because the video was very visual. So if you want to have some idea about what I'm talking about here, you can go ahead and check out the video. But the concept and the content is ultimately the same because I'm going to talk about the 5% rule. Now there's this rule in construction that the last 5% of a construction project never actually gets completed, whether that be sanding a piece of wood or painting a piece of trim or polishing some sloppy plumbing or whatever it may be. That last 5% never gets done for whatever reason. And generally it's because there's a sense that I'm done. <laughs> well, the same thing applies to vans. And of course, I've said many times that no van is ever finished, and that should be how it is. I mean, this is, this is a lifestyle, it's a hobby, and uh, you should always be trying to improve your van. But there is a related concept that I want to talk about, and that is the expedient repair. Now, in my case, I bought some land last year, and I immediately bought a tractor, and I had a very limited timeline for picking that tractor up. I had basically one day to get the tractor and bring it down to Illinois. It was up in Wisconsin. It was actually going to be a long day. And I've got a Sprinter 2500. I can tow 5,000 pounds and a Kubota plus trailer doesn't weigh anywhere near that. So I wasn't worried about it. But I also have an ambulance and most ambulances don't have tow hitches installed because in the back, there's usually a step so that people can get in the back and that interferes with a tow hitch. It's not always the case. There are some exceptions, but my ambulance is not one of them. So I basically got up in the morning and I had to remove the back step, install a tow hitch and install the trailer wiring, and then drive to Wisconsin, get the Kubota, drive it all the way down to Tiki Bago land, and then head back to Chicago after dropping off the trailer, which was a U-Haul. It was going to be a long day. So I got up and of course it starts raining and snowing, but uh, yeah, whatever, I've got to do this. So I'm climbing under the van and I remove the step and I drop it and it falls on my face and I break my glasses and I don't care and I keep going. I install the Kurt hitch, which wasn't too bad. I've done that before. They bolt on and uh, I, I'm pretty fond of Kurt hitches. I think they do a good job. And then I got to the trailer wiring. Now, trailer wiring these days is pretty easy. It's mostly plug and play, and then you need to run a hotline and a ground. The ground is just screw into the body somewhere near the taillight on the inside, um, and that's not a big deal. But the hot lead, well, you can use basically any hot lead, but I was in a hurry, and I didn't want to go through the effort of running the wire through the inside of the van to the leisure battery or anything like that. I just very carefully ran the wire under the van all the way under the hood. Now in my Sprinter, I have an option, a factory installed option of an auxiliary battery under the hood. This is a battery that doesn't actually get used anymore. It was meant for vans that were going to be ambulances or wheelchair vans or something like that. But because I have the leisure battery, it's just kind of sitting there and it, it basically serves as the battery I can use to jumpstart the thing if I need to. So I figured, well, I'll just run the wire straight to the battery. Yes, I had a fuse. 
that's fine. And I did. I ran the wire straight to the battery. I, I, unscrewed the, I unscrewed the nut that attaches to the big terminal in the wire there, and I just put a ring terminal on my wire and put it right on there, and it's fine. It worked. I went and got the Kubota, brought it down. Everything worked fine. Except I did a really, really crappy job with the wiring. Everything was fine until you got under the hood. And then I ran out of wire. <laughs> so I ended up with this super taut wire. Basically, where it comes into the hood, it was tight all the way to the battery. And you never want your wires to be tight. Mistake number one. Mistake number two, I didn't have the right size ring terminal. The ring terminal I had was way too big. So I basically unscrewed the nut and put the ring terminal on it and then screwed the nut down just on the top of the ring terminal. I mean, you could actually see through the ring terminal there was that much space. This is also not good. But hey, it worked and I didn't have the right size ring terminal and I didn't have any extra wire with me and I needed to get this done. So my expedient repair, completely successful. I was able to go get everything done. And then a year went by, and I never fixed it. Until this weekend. I finally said, that's it, enough, I'm going to fix this. I can only imagine the look on mechanics' faces when they lifted the hood and saw this and thought, oh my god, what amateur hour. Now, I didn't do a terrible, terrible job. This wasn't in any danger of catching on fire. It was fused. All the connections were in pretty good shape. I did have a butt connector under the hood that wasn't wrapped up, which is a bad idea because butt connectors are open on the ends and you want to seal them. So now it's fixed. I added the proper amount of wire. I bought a big box of ring terminals of all different sizes and put the exact correct size on there. I got rid of the butt connector entirely and used my fake Wago connectors and then wrapped that up with electrical tape for good measure. And then I covered the entire wire with wire loom, which is that plastic protective stuff, and ran it all along the wall without any tightness whatsoever. And I did one thing more as I labeled the fuse holder that sticks out with the word trailer. So if anybody looks at this, they'll know what this is. The point of this story isn't, hey, what a good boy I am. It's a, hey, if you do these expedient repairs, and you have to sometimes, write them down, and then make sure you go back and fix them. Because otherwise they're going to pile up and eventually one of them's going to bite you. And it, it actually could be pretty serious. Tales from the road. Okay, we have a spooky one here. Way back in the mid-late 2000s, I was investigating a haunting. That's right, I was at the Menger Hotel in San Antonio, Texas, right across the street from the Alamo, which does not have a basement, bicycles or not. But uh, surprisingly, the Alamo was actually downtown San Antonio. It's not out in the desert somewhere. It was at one time. And... Well, the whole Alamo story is um, mostly fiction, in my opinion, and uh, there's a book called uh, Forget the Alamo, that uh, if you want to learn more about the Alamo, you can read that. But this isn't a ghost story about the Alamo. This is a ghost story about the Menger Hotel. Now, this is an old hotel. It was the main hotel for San Antonio for well over 100 years. It was right next to the slave auction, which, of course, you have to look for a tiny little plaque to learn about. 
But there is a bar there, and there were bullet holes in the ceiling, and apparently Theodore Roosevelt rode his horses into the bar, and, you know, it has all that kind of legend. And, you know, it's kind of a cool place. I like staying there. So, in order to do an official ghost hunt, a colleague and I rented out the King Suite for a couple of days. Now, the King Suite isn't named because it's big and there was a king there. Well, there was a king there. There was a gentleman there by the name of Richard King, a.k.a. Dick King, a.k.a. the man who owned the largest ranch in Texas. In fact, if you buy a Ford truck now that is a King Ranch edition, it's that Dick King. The reason they named the suite after him is because not only did he stay there, he died there. And, uh, well, according to some folks... He's still staying there. <laughs> okay, yeah, whatever. We were on the skeptic side of things, right? So we had our EM meter, which uh, is this meter that, you know, detects EM, which is everywhere all the time anyway. Mm. And we had a FLIR camera so we could see cold or something. We, we weren't really expecting to see much. And um, my colleague got the bedroom and I got the couch. That way we were double covered and we were in separate rooms and we could catch whatever we wanted to catch. And other than some strange behavior amongst the locals, we didn't really see much until we brought the EM meter into the bedroom. Now, it was a normal hotel bedroom. In fact, the bedroom was maybe the size of a regular hotel bedroom, except this was a suite, so it had other rooms as well. But the EM reader got really kind of freaky in the bedroom. So, being that it was the king suite, there was a king-sized bed in there, of course. And this wasn't just any king-sized bed. This was the king-sized bed that Richard King, Dick King, died in. Although, when we checked in, the front desk assured us that they had changed the mattresses. Which, which is a good thing, because he died in the 19th century. <laughs> so, that hopefully would have gone without saying. But it was the same frame and headboard that uh, Dick King was sleeping in when he died. And, um, well, the EM meter got really kind of freaky when we got near the bed. And so, this thing just, you know, is an arrow that goes up and down, uh, like a VU meter, you know, it just goes up and down when it detects... EM, and in this case it was detecting, you know, electrical frequencies, and it got lot bigger and bigger the closer we got to the bed. In fact, it got bigger and bigger the closer we got to the head of the bed. And what was even freakier, it was only on one side of the bed that this thing started getting a really strong reading. Now, we were the skeptics, right? We were the ones who were here to debunk this whole ghost nonsense, and yet here we were with an anomalous reading. Um, well, I guess ghosts are real. Well, no, no. <laughs> we did not stop there. Because we were not looking to find ghosts, we were looking to find explanations for phenomena. And, uh, well, it turns out we did. Now, you might be thinking, oh, the bed was magnetized, or there was something under the bed, and uh, no. In fact, what was next to the bed was something you'd find in most hotels and motels across the country, and that was an alarm clock. A very old alarm clock. 
one from the 70s. The kind of alarm clock that had a big transformer inside it, which modern alarm clocks do not. And this big transformer was transforming AC power, probably to DC power at a lower voltage. I don't know exactly what it was doing. But in so doing, it was shedding a lot of electromagnetism. And our meter was catching it. And of course, where is an alarm clock in a bedroom? Yeah, right next to one side of the bed. Now, is that the side Richard King died on? We don't know. I don't know that that's even recorded. And heck, it may not even be the same bed. And the bed may be actually in a different part of the room at the time. And this whole story could be made up. I don't know. But anyway, in the end, you know, it wasn't that creepy. But it was still kind of interesting. A place to visit. So I'm here at the INM Canal Visitor Center at Lock 14 in LaSalle, Illinois, which happens to be just across the river from where the Tiki Bagos parked. So I'm here all the time, but I figured I should let you know about it because it's kind of a cool piece of history. I'm here at the end of the canal. And what is the INM Canal, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. So INM stands for Illinois and Michigan because while the canal didn't make it all the way to Michigan, it did make it to Lake Michigan, which would then connect you with Michigan. So you could get goods from the Mississippi River to Michigan on this canal. Did you know that Chicago used to get most of its stuff transported like this? That's right, it came by canal. Not train, not anything else. They had a canal that led eventually to the Mississippi River and it connected Chicago to the Mississippi River, which of course was the nation's water highway. And this canal was hand dug all the way from LaSalle to Chicago, about a hundred miles away. A little bit of work. And it lasted for maybe 75 years. And then they basically fixed the Illinois River so that it was navigable. And that was the end of that. But you can still experience it today. If you'd like, you can buy tickets and get on the Volunteer, which is a recreation towboat. And uh, what tows it, you might ask? Well, not those things that were towing the barges in the river earlier. No, it's towed by a mule, a mule named Mo. That's right, Mo just walks up the path here and drags the boat behind him. And uh, it's interesting because the rope isn't taut. The rope just stays slack and Mo takes his leisurely time going up the path and he can tow this boat with up to 70 people on it with no problem at all. And what keeps it from smashing into the bank? Well, if you can see there, there's actually a big rudder. And uh, well, we never said it was efficient, but it is a way to get a lot of stuff up the canal and all the way to Chicago. Now, one of the things people like to do here is ride bikes. And of course, if you've got a towboat or a boat that needs to be towed, you also have a towpath. But if you're traveling and didn't bring your bike, that's okay. Because here at the visitor center, they have rental bikes and you can rent a bike and take it up as far as you'd like to go. The visitor center itself is actually pretty cool. They have good lunch and a very interesting gift shop and maps and interpretive stuff all about the site. So this is not the big destinations of the Midwest or anything like that, but it's a fun little place to visit. It's kind of nice and quiet and it's a little bit of history that you might not have been aware of. And heck, you get to feed Mo some carrots if you bring some. Thank you.
product review. Oh, another week where I get to review a product that I super, super, super like. <laughs> this time it is the Venti Fan. Now, you may have gathered that I like fans. I think in my Envy 200 I had five fans installed at one point. Uh, I'm only up to three in the M3 ambulance, but uh, yeah, now I've got four. Yes, I bought a Venti portable fan. And uh, well, let me tell you why this thing is so darn cool. This is a portable USB chargeable fan. It has a massive 16,000 milliamp hour battery that you can also use to charge your phone, because why not? It has a light in the base and it has four speeds. And at top speed, it's like a real fan. And it will last for well over 30 hours, up to 40 hours maybe, and it's portable. You can carry it with you, and according to them, you can take it on an airplane. Generally, large lithium batteries like that you have to carry on, and uh, I'm not so sure about that. But at any rate, this thing is like everything you ever wanted in a fan. You can set it on the desk, and it's just a fan. Or you can set it on the floor, and it telescopes up three feet it's kind of magic. And then let's say there's two people and they both want the fan and the fan is only going to blow in one direction. But oh no, you can turn on the oscillator. This is an oscillating fan. The entire thing rotates, not just the head, the entire thing. And it even has a nightlight. Now, what I really love about this thing is that it folds down into this little carrying case and you can toss it in your suitcase or in your van or whatever. And, you know, on those nights when it's been kind of cloudy all day and your solar power isn't really keeping up, as long as this thing's charged, you've still got a fan all night, and that's really important to me. It even has a remote control that pops out of the base. So I've been using this thing all day now, and um, I love it. It followed me around as I was working on the van. I had it sitting next to me when I had my lunch. And you can have it on quiet or you can have it on full blast, which is still pretty quiet, but it does have significant airflow. So, uh, yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> no, I'm really a fan of this Venti thing. And no, this isn't sponsored in any way. I know they're doing sponsorships. They didn't give me one. I saw this and bought it with my own money. And that's the possible one drawback. It's 80 but when you consider that it's also a very large battery bank that you can charge your phone or whatever with, eh, that's not so bad, really. The other drawback is that because it's such a large battery, it does take a long time to charge. It can take all day to charge, and it's kind of a slow charge. It doesn't charge quickly like a Mac or an iPhone or an Android device or anything like that. It just kind of chugs along. So when you're not using it, you're going to want to have it plugged in so it can charge. Or you can just leave it plugged in all the time. I intend to use this thing in my van and whenever I travel and probably at home on my desk too. Um, I have a link in the show notes to uh, purchase one. But again, even though I'm raving about this thing, I promise this is not a sponsored review. I bought it with my own money and I'm darn glad that I did. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 167. This was a cavalcade of errors and mistakes, and I apologize for some of the poor quality in this one, but we're going to keep at it, and we're going to keep getting it done. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. 
And until next time, remember this quote from Ed Begley Jr. You're not really recycling if you're not buying recycled products.